0: Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on this Halloween day of 2020. That is when this is dropping. And you can see I am dressed for the occasion in my generic Halloween costume. Uh, Which, uh, if you caught my... um, critical conversation show last night you know this is also my my halloween costume there And so uh, I am welcoming this week back for another round of legal interrogation my friend Cyprian Ivanov, who I have had on the podcast before to discuss legal activities, and even our first podcast was a little bit of an analysis and and talk about the Scientology justice system. And it's the, the pros and mostly cons of that. So anyway, I welcome Cyprian back. Hey, welcome to the show.
1: Hello again. And unfortunately, I forgot to be in my costume. I don't have a tinfoil (laughs) hat right now.
0: Yeah, sorry about that. I should have given you a heads up about the Halloween episode here. Um, Cyprian is a licensed attorney in the uh, District of Columbia in Washington, D.C., and Um, And he and I have had some very, very interesting, both on and off the air, have had many conversations where I've I've gone to Cyprian and and asked about legal issues. And it's kind of a funny thing. You know, one thing I didn't – this is kind of funny – funny thing consequence or unintended consequence of being a content creator like I am, where I've put out, you know, hundreds of podcasts and videos talking about things with lots and lots of different people, are the friends you make and the and the connections that you make with people out in the big wide world of various disciplines and professions, psychologists, sociologists, neurologists, and, and lawyers. And so I will often... Um, because I make friends with with my guests often, not all the time, but often, I reach out to them and try and have questions about all kinds of stuff. And I've invited Cyprian on today because, you know, I thought we'd record one of our conversations about some of my questions because this last week had some pretty interesting things happen uh, in terms of cults and uh, destructive cult activities. Uh, Keith Raniere, or A or Renier, or however you say that guy's name, Keith Raniere, I guess is the is Renier is the um, former leader of Nexium, which was a business consultation sort of life, you know, coaching sort of cult. It was a non religious cult, and I believe it was because it was a non religious cult that the FBI was able to investigate and move in and and uh, and you know action was taken against uh, Keith Rainier and he was just this week found or sentenced rather he'd already been found guilty and now he was sentenced this week to 120 years in jail. So basically he's never coming out. He's going away and he's and he's not coming away coming back. And uh, while the world doesn't particularly mourn his loss um, it was a, you know there were comments about it being a pretty steep, you know uh, uh, sentence I mean that's you know there are murderers who have gotten less time than that and there are other crimes of you know that you might consider of a more serious nature or even though let's be clear I'm not trying to give Keith a pass and I don't personally think it was too stiff a sentence but I do I just thought I'd, I'd address that point with you because you made a really cogent point right before we, we hit record about that your, your take on this as
1: the famous saying goes, uh,
0: we do not, we do not
1: uh, hang men for horses. We hang men that horses may not be stolen.
0: Right. Well, the point of enough. a lot
1: of these punishments is to intimidate the sane and reasonably law-abiding away from doing certain behaviors. And it's easier to dissuade a cult leader from committing crimes than it is to dissuade a mass murderer from being crazy.
0: Right. And that is pretty interesting, uh, but also makes total sense to me. It's not something that particularly occurred to me, but I thought, wow, pretty good point. Because um, hopefully this kind of thing is exactly, well, This, is, these are the kind of decisions and the kind of punishments that we actually are... In desperate need of uh, in the United States, and I would say, really, in all Western nations, because even in Europe, you have the problem of sects, uh, sects, which is their word for cults. And oh, uh,
1: well, there's—it's not a perfect
0: overlap. No, no, um, of course not. No, but wait, wait, how do you see it as different? Um. In the
1: U well, in the English language, cult generally implies a degree of coercion Mm -hmm. or dishonesty. Mm -hmm. Uh, in a number of continental European languages, sex simply indicates a lack of formalized, recognized structure. So it can overlap so sex includes not just things like Scientology but also some evangelical movements that are not abusive, but which do not obey the formalized bureaucratized structure of uh, the legal construct of religion in a number of countries.
0: Hmm. Okay, fair enough. I also I normally think about um, it's mostly in terms of the uh, language that's utilized in European nations that I've run across when I've interviewed or talked with Europeans about cults. Uh, The word "sex" is always brought up as you know a sect, as uh, as how they talk about those groups versus how we talk about them as destructive cults, I suppose, but. You know, at the end, I suppose it's neither here nor there. I find it interesting that France—I've been learning in my uni studies that uh, France and the UK, the United Kingdom, both are the the only countries we're aware of that have actual laws that address these groups specifically or are trying to address more broadly even in the UK— I really shouldn't say the, the the law I'm referring to here is just to address cults, because it's really, it's really not. It's really more about domestic violence. But there is a coercive control law. Uh, it's, it's part of a broader piece of legislation that was passed in, I think, 2015 that we've been learning about in the UK. And coercive control is finally being codified in the law there as um, following on Evan Stark's descriptions and models, at least as I understand how they have worded the law, around uh, coercive control being a repeating pattern, that's, that's key to it, it can't just be a one-off instance of abuse uh, domestically or group to individual or however, whatever the dynamic is, and it has to involve intentional activity. Intentional abuse; it can't be, uh, you know, as an unintended consequence or side effect of some other action a person is doing. So, um, I think those two things are are quite important. How do you see what I'm describing here, and and what you might know about this? I didn't prep for this at all, by the way. I didn't give Cyprian the law or ask him about I haven't it. I but... read the
1: legislation, yeah, so that's... I can't really comment too deep too heavily on it. But um, a number of U.S. states have laws about domestic violence, which address the repeated nature of things, not just specific incidents. Right. Uh, that's, That's good to know. I don't know if it is really going at the same concept, just with different wording, or if it is something completely different.
0: I'm not sure either. I, what I do know is that that law in the UK could be utilized. And the um, there's an, also another law in France uh, called the Abu-Picard law or bill or, or legislation that could also be utilized. But neither one of them actually yet have been to go after, as I understand it, to, to directly go after destructive cults like Scientology. And um, I believe in France, they've either run into complications with it. I'm not totally clear on what the problem has been there. They just haven't, you know, had the, the gumption to go after it with that law. And in the UK, they have not yet addressed the cult problem. They have used that legislation almost uh, almost uh, exclusively for instances of coercive control in interpersonal relationships. Um
2: and
1: as with anything in law, specifics matter.
0: Right. Well, this is a question I have, though, is just because, you know, the case, the law has been utilized in that arena only so far doesn't mean it has to be only in that arena, right? We could still, if the language of the law is such that it could apply to a Scientology relationship of coercive control over a period of time with, a, with abuse, could that not... Theoretically, at least, go go forward?
1: Um, again, my knowledge
0: is with the U.S. legal system. Fair enough.
1: And matters of interpretation in the U.K. as another common law jurisdiction follow many common principles, but is still a different legal system. Got it. France, well, I have read parts of the French legal code, but I am not versed in French law.
0: Okay, fair enough.
1: So their process of interpretation may be completely different. I can't judge that.
0: Yeah, France France has definitely been a a different kettle of fish than than the UK or the United States, that's for sure, in terms of their Um, history of prosecution against Scientology.
1: In the US, a law that might uh, be unconstitutional because of the way it is enforced or conducted can still be considered constitutional constitutional, if it can be enforced constitutionally. Okay. So if going after certain cases of domestic abuse is uh, a legal application of it, it can be constitutional, but trying to apply it to something else that would be unconstitutional would invalidate that application, but would still leave the law in the books.
0: So... If I had, just um, dis- as I've described here, we they- the reason I harp on these two points is they're the points we're most focused on in our class. Of course, we're not into the legalese of it so much as how can this be utilized to stop abusive behavior, both with coercive control, because that's what I'm studying, both domestically or in group settings. Would there, you know? I'm wondering here in the United States about, you know, whether we might legitimately or viably be able to bring this kind of a law over here. And because um, we do well, have this bill of rights with freedom of speech, freedom of religion, you know.
2: I mean,
1: there are two things I see. Mm-hmm. One, uh, there is a view that trying to conduct a case on the uh Factual claims of a religious belief is unconstitutional. You aren't allowed to try the truth of a religious claim, Mm -hmm. but you are allowed to try other things.
0: Such as physical abuse? Yes. Okay, so then why is it that we seem to have a problem, like let's say the Headley case years ago in California, where they tried to bring a case of, you know, uh, abuse, physical abuse. They were, you know, tortured, etc. cetera. And, uh, like, I think it was under human rights abuses. And this was dismissed because this all fell under the purview. The premise
1: of... is that they consented to it. Right. That is the big problem. Okay. Uh, how do you determine if people consented to what? ended up being done to them.
0: And that's interesting because it only really validates one decision. Your initial decision to consent, to agree, to sign a contract, to give over, to say, yeah, I'll join this group. I want to be part of this. I understand the discipline's harsh, but I want to do this. But then what happens when you make an informed decision to change your mind and no longer want to be part of that activity and say, no, this is not right, I don't want this, this is not the kind of behavior I think is acceptable, and I want you to stop, and yet somehow that doesn't get recognized because of that initial decision. How does how does the law deal with that? Like, why can't you change your mind?
1: Um... There are a number of factors there, Mm -hmm. Uh, so specifics matter.
0: Okay. Uh, Well, let's talk about the Hadleys, for example.
1: uh, Dang i read a I read an article about that case, and there was a big difference in how threats of spiritual consequences were treated between the Ninth Circuit and I want to say the Fifth Circuit. Mm -hmm. Uh. The way a lot of the
0: this this case literally we, has a Wikipedia article. <laughs> um, Headley versus Church of Scientology International.
1: Yes, it's an interesting case, and a number of lawyers have taken a look at it. It is uh, pretty fascinating in the way that threats of spiritual consequences get treated.
0: Yeah, here we, here, here's the specifics of the case in terms of uh, a, a, a short version of this is that they alleged that the, that the Church of Scientology International, which was the organization that they were employed by since the C organization is not a corporation or organization or official body of any kind. So they're according to Scientology. Well, and according to I guess anything legally. I mean, if there's no corporate papers or legal, <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. Anyway, I just pointed that out just to point it out. But the, the the specifics of the case are that they alleged that the organization had violated laws against human trafficking and violated their human rights during their time of employment in the Sea Org. Now, the federal district court decided a
1: matter because they, those unless you're trying to cite a treaty in the incorporation clause, that's not really something you can sue under.
0: Well, fa- violating matter. your human rights is not something you can sue under?
1: It's not a specific provision. So it, it, it might be a broad descriptor of behaviors, but it's not the specific claim itself.
0: Okay, well, fair enough. So, this is a summation of what, the, of what they were doing. I mean, this yeah, isn't... This isn't the specific thing. It was under the Federal Victims of Trafficking and Violence Protection Act of 2000. There
1: we go. That's
0: more valuable. Right. So that's what they brought a case for. And the thing that pissed everybody off about the results of it are that the Headleys, the federal district court decided that ministerial exemption protected the Church of Scientology from litigation and dismiss the case. So it was never even tried, right? And Um, ministerial exception for the audience is sometimes known as the ecclesiastical exception, is a legal doctrine in the United States barring the application of anti-discrimination laws to religious institutions' employment relationships with its quote-unquote ministers.
1: Which I do not think would really apply to what happened to the Headleys.
2: Well, they appealed it. But there's another factor.
1: Uh, The way that Scientology tried to control the Headleys was with threats of uh, spiritual consequences. Mm -hmm. And the Ninth Circuit did not consider that to be a credible threat.
0: And that's exactly why I think the legal system doesn't understand this concept I'm bringing over from the UK law, or would like to put into here. And this is what I wanted to address with you today, or one of the things but I wanted to address. Remember, plus.
1: that's a circuit split because another circuit does.
0: Well, see, this is the thing. Okay, well, I don't. Okay, I I, I can't get too much into the weeds on the differences between federal, state, local, whatever. I. I'm trying to keep this as general as I can while addressing specifics because I know this is a – I know our legal system is very difficult to understand, which is why you have to go to years of school to get it. And that's what I'm trying to understand is I'm trying to understand this, right? Like I don't understand how it is that – um, a court can – church lawyers argued that the First Amendment prohibited the courts from considering a forced labor claim premised upon social and psychological factors because they concern the, quote, beliefs, religious upbringing, religious training, religious practices, the religious lifestyle restraints of a religious order. How, you know, how does the court not recognize that psychological abuse is abuse?
1: That depends on what the behavior is okay. and in one circuit, uh, which deals with a lot of Southern states, which also have their religious groups, some of which are uh, uh, reasonable, some of which aren't, they view threats of spiritual consequences as threats. California, uh, sorry, the ninth circuit, which heavily involves California does not. It's a difference in what they view as credible.
0: So, so so if they had brought their suit in a different state or in a different area, it might have had a different outcome? Yep. So basically, California is a great place to get away with abusing the shit out of people as a cult. Pretty much. <laughs> wow. That's actually all by itself a very interesting piece of information. Would they have been able to get away with that in D.C.? Where you practice. I don't know. Huh. But I would guess not. Really? Interesting. Maybe that's one reason why they maintain a California headquarters now that I sit here thinking about it. What about Florida? I don't know. Huh. Just food for thought. But I just didn't even consider that that would be a, a I didn't think geography was going to be the problem.
1: It has to do with what jurisdiction is involved. because. Yeah. Cases go from the trial court, they go up to the federal trial court, they go up to a circuit court, which reviews all those trial courts, they make their own rules, and then some of those cases get heard by the Supreme Court. But a lot of the time, there is disagreement. And that means there's a circuit split. So one group of courts decides, you know, we really think that is a credible threat. Another says, no, we really don't think that's a credible threat.
0: What do you think about that as a lawyer having to operate in that system where in one geographic zone, a person can get away with criminal activity under the guise of religious protection, (sighs) whereas in another area that wouldn't be the case? How do you... Reconcile that, and I don't. I'm not attacking you I, I, at all. I mean, I'm asking you questions. You know, it's a
1: complicated area. Well, it is,
0: um, and but I wonder how do lawyers reconcile this because the law is, you know, most citizens, most of us don't think about things that compartmentalized
1: and, conflicts of laws is a really complicated field. I bet it is, and it is one of those painful things that's a big part of why large organizations need lawyers because you can't just figure out what's going to happen by just looking at one jurisdiction. You have to think about how it impact how other jurisdictions are going to impact it.
0: Interesting. Now, you so have was... behavior in
1: the Ninth Circuit. That activity has one standard of threat, but you do something in another circuit, they're going to judge it differently.
0: Okay. And this is, just so I'm clear, yeah, and we are talking Ninth Circuit here. So this is, Federal District Court. The United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit affirm the lower court's dismissal. So this is federal court. This is not Los Angeles County. This is not state of California. It's It's federal, yeah?
1: But they might be up. Op- so you have to look at the specifics of the lawsuit. Uh-huh. Is it suing under a state law? In which case they're going to apply state law even uh, although it might be heard in federal court because of a number of conditions. Or if it's a federal law, they'll hear it under uh, a federal uh, set of procedures and laws, and they're going to process it that way.
0: And that's what happened here? Yeah, I think so. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, it was federal district court, and it was the Federal Victims of Trafficking and Violence Protection Act of 2000, that they brought the case. So that was their strategy and um and just to be clear about this in terms of the ruling, I mean let's be let's be really clear here because I have a real problem with how the courts just dismiss out of hand. I have
1: a problem with it as well.
0: Yeah. But I mean, well, just to be, just to, just so we're bringing, because this was a while ago, and, and a lot of people might have forgotten about this Headley case, but it was actually quite important. The church acknowledged that the rules under which the Headleys lived included a ban on having children, censored mail, monitored phone calls, needing permission to have internet access, and being disciplined through manual labor. The church acknowledged all of those things are true. They do all of it. The US Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals noted in a ruling from July 2012 that Headley had been made to clean up human excrement by hand from a narration pond with no protective equipment, while Claire Headley was banned from the dining hall for up to eight months in 2002. And that's where you eat in the Sea Org. So if you're banned yeah. from there, good luck getting food. Uh, she lost 30 pounds as a result of subsisting on protein bars and water. So this was all acknowledged. The court knew all about this and said, and then had the fucking gall to write. Examining church operations rooted in religious scripture uh, is precisely bringing the church to account for how it disciplined its members was precisely, quote, precisely the type of entanglement that the religion clauses prohibit. So they look at all this battery litany of abusive behavior and just go, eh, religion, we're keeping our hands off of this. We're and in fact prohibited from doing anything about this. Am I reading this right?
1: Uh, you may be reading the court's interpretation <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. I may not entirely agree with the court.
0: Right. Um Right. So interesting. It seems that this court, and this was back in, let's, you know, this was in 2009 when they sued, and um, 2012 when that was reaffirmed and that the lower court had gotten it right on appeal and they dismissed it. So I'm, what I'm keen on, or what I'm keen to know about, right, is do we need even if we bring a coercive control law into the United States, do we still have to deal with this First Amendment hurdle? Do churches just get a pass on coercively controlling their members because it's no big deal? Now, let's define this. The coercive control is is a repeating pattern of intentional isolation, intimidation, and control.
1: And my my lawyer's mind says... All three of those are vague and would need to be defined, and both definition and enforcement can be manipulated based on the goals and powers of the parties involved. Right. Uh, And that's one reason why there is a hesitation to look closely at the specifics of the behavior of ostensibly religious organizations.
0: Well, exactly. And that's what we don't seem to be doing.
1: There are two avenues I'd like to go down. One is a voluntariness one, the other is how the government responds to claims of being religious. Please. So uh, the second one first. Uh, It used to be that religious claims, at least with regards to claiming a religious exemption from the draft, Uh, tested for sincerity. Are you sincere that you believe this? Are you sincere that you are doing this? Can we see some evidence in the form of, can you actually articulate this? You claim to be a pacifist, but did you join uh, a recreational shooting and boxing club, which would seem to kind of contradict that. Sure. Those are things, those were claims that were examined in the past. Okay, but the seventies onwards, courts backed away from it. They didn't want to examine it, and since then, a whole bunch of scams popped up, claiming right. we're a religion, so we can get uh, ta- we can get our building tax free and zoning. Right. Uh, and it's obviously a scam, but the refusal to examine sincerity means that a lot of shady stuff happens. And at what point does the ostensible desire to protect uh, that provision by not examining it destroy the justification for that provision? When you make something so broad that it encompasses a whole bunch of abuses, you destroy the legitimacy of it, which is one religious argument uh, against the removal of the uh, uh, investigation into sincerity. Mm. Because by allowing frauds, you destroy the legitimacy of religious protections in general.
0: Well, it certainly seems that there's... there. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems problematic to me. Um, why the back-off? They were going great guns. They had a draft. They. I mean, why the... W- why the change? You, I think you know? two
1: factors. One, there was a greater push to be uh, encompassing not just uh, theistic religions, but also things like Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so certainly Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, they have established uh, bodies of thought and analysis and they involve n- uh, very abstract concepts, non-physical, that you can observe and analyze. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, when you get into things like a more shamanistic approach of this grove of trees or uh, uh, the difficulty of pinning down Buddhist doctrines for major schools at least, uh, they are Considered religion sociologically, but they follow a very different sociological role yes. from uh, the monotheistic ones. Yes, and if you're going to tr- it's, expand the concept of religion to, uh. Mm-hmm things like Buddhism or even Taoism, which really shouldn't be considered a religion, it's really just a way of referring to a b- bunch of traditional practices, You're that's going to destroy the ways of checking for sincerity by belief.
0: Mm. But why? Couldn't a person who's a Buddhist still offer evidence of profound and, and sincere, significant belief in Because Buddhist a lot principles? of those...
1: A lot of what are called religions are more about practice without belief. Hmm. So following the rituals is what matters, not uh, the state of internal contemplation or uh, what we would consider sincerity and behavior.
0: But how do we get to a point? I mean, uh, good, fine then, you know, sincerity tests, fine, we won't do sincerity tests. I mean, it is all rather subjective and, and opinion-based anyway. What I think most people who get into the Scientology-watching sphere or the cult-watching sphere are feel assaulted by, when their sense of reality starts getting assaulted, is what I was reading from Hedley's case, where the court acknowledges gross. Physical, mental, psychological abuses have occurred. I mean, Claire Headley loses thirty pounds over. I mean, she's already a slight woman, and you know, and there is this abusive behavior, and it is shown to be an ongoing. They didn't even get to trial, but even in the even in the beginning parts of the case before it was dismissed, they were shown that this was a repeating pattern, that this was abusive, that they considered it abusive, and. Yet it gets a pass, and so what I'm guessing because of the religion angle, it said right there the court looked at that and went, "Nope, this is what the religious stuff is." And that was goes to the for. second
1: element was well, that well, I thought mentioned it first, voluntariness, mm-hmm. because you can consent to a lot of stuff that would seem seem shocking if it was imposed on you, but if you volunteer for it, mm-hmm. then it doesn't seem problematic.
0: So in this sphere of religion, this seems to have some sort of weird—the courts courts in America, and we are talking strictly U.S. now, seem to have this very strange pro-religion bias. Now, the First Amendment talks about—I mean, I'm just, I'm just talking about perception here, right? I mean, maybe they don't, but this is how— we end up having to look at this, right? Because, and I, I consider because, it from your background. Well, yeah, because, like, for example, you you so, you know, you talk about consent or, or voluntariness, and I think to myself immediately, I start ro- lining up other analogies. And of, you're
1: talking Scientology, and there's so much pressure there that it's really hard to consider it voluntary,
0: well, but that's yeah. It's presumed
1: to be because you're not looking at the details.
0: Okay. Well, if we look at the details, then we get into this topic called coercive control, or even even more. You know, maybe even more broadly. But I I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna bring this into it now. Maybe I'm. Uh, I hope I'm not gonna get overly complicated here. But um, if oh, actually, before I before I do that, before I get into undue influence, I still want to, I got to harp on this voluntary thing a little bit more that you brought up, but I'm only responding to what you're saying. I, I haven't done like some deep dive on this stuff. I wanted to talk to you about it. So if somebody, it kind of brings me back to my first question. Yeah, it's voluntary all the way up to the point where you withdraw your consent, where you as an individual go, no, I'm actually not okay with this anymore. I don't want this happening, right? Or Even after the fact of it, now, that's where things get a little bit careful, you know, a little bit, uh, because if you are involved in an abusive situation and you never say anything about it, and then you leave and go, well, they abused me, and I guess that's how the Headleys were being looked at. I still feel that there are rights there. I don't know. It's this is. The, I guess I see where this can start becoming a little bit more difficult because if you never said anything during the time you were there, but but I don't know. But even if you did say something during the time you were there and the abuse continued, you should still. I mean, there should still be some rights afforded to you to have to have that redressed. Um. And a person can
1: consent. Uh, to go through momentary suffering. One of the problems is that consent really is a spectrum. The law treats it as a unitary thing because it's at this point we consider consent. Beyond that, we don't. But that's very context dependent. And circumstances can be such that even though the words say yes, the context is so pressuring that it would not be considered consent. Yeah. And the law has dealt with a number of those cases. And the protections afforded to a lot of that behavior, such as the employment situation of the Headleys, would be accepted because it was considered voluntary. Now, it probably was not voluntary some ways in, Uh, At certain points i think that certainly was not voluntary Mm. but unless a lot of evidence is produced to point out those coercive factors it's going to be assumed to be voluntary right
0: and so i guess this is why this particular strategy hasn't been used or utilized by anybody else you
1: need facts
3: you
0: need evidence
1: and the thing is Scientology has lawyers. They have people who draft documents, who told them to record signings, who show how to go through all the steps to make this seem like there's a lot of thought being put into this. Now, what's off camera is a whole bunch of uh, your family members are going to be declared or uh, you'll be separated from your family. uh, mother, father, child, spouse, whatnot. Right. But that's not on camera. Right. And that separation is voluntary.
0: Right. That's where we need a recognition of coercive control for what it is. Because it's we we try to go in on the human rights. Nope, doesn't work. We try to go in on the human trafficking. Nope, doesn't work. We try to go in on the voluntary commitment. Nope, doesn't work. You try well, to go in on the you, behavior You need itself. evidence for the voluntariness.
1: <sighs> and I think that can be argued. But it takes skill and evidence gathering to argue the voluntariness issue.
0: Well, then there is this matter of... Um, then there is the matter of the contracts. See, it seems like... Like, it seems like... Every avenue, as we're walking through these here, every avenue, as you said, these people hire very smart lawyers who spend a lot of time trying to figure out all the vectors of attack that Scientology could be susceptible or open to or liable to, and then figure out the iron doors to to close those paths so they don't ever, they can't ever be open. This Headley case is an example there with the human rights and trafficking. And you can't go after them for blatantly abusive behavior because it was voluntary under, you know, religious exemption or ministerial exemption. And you go, okay, so David Miscavige can beat up on as many people as he wants to, and it doesn't matter because they all volunteered for that behavior. Is that basically how that argument works?
1: Um, Probably under the same reasoning that uh, doesn't get boxers in trouble
0: for hitting each other. Right. Because they're but voluntarily. there are there. rules for
1: boxers. Right. There are, aren't really many rules in Scientology. Exactly,
0: and basically, David Miscavige gets to have his way with whoever he wants, and, and because they signed. Fact, the illusion of structure, the illusion of protections, the
1: illusion of recourse for abuses, is, I think, one of the things that influences people in joining the Sea Org. Or being willing to be a member of public.
0: Yes. yes, that's true. But the fact
1: that those are illusions, I think, goes a long way to point out, hey, there's some kind of misrepresentation there.
0: Right. But it but it but it then you have to prove it, right? How did they misrepresent it? In what way exactly? And now for the poor schlep ex-scientologist. Who doesn't have access to his records? Can't get his PC folders. Can't get his ethics file. Can't get any KRs that were written on him, right? Knowledge reports. Uh, cannot get any of that information. It's all owned, lock, stock, and barrel by the church. And even if you have your own copies of your KRs, that's all you got. You ain't got everything else. You don't have the church's evaluations of you, the actions the church took against you, who said what, when. You'd have to subpoena all that stuff and. Good luck getting all of that. So, how do how would you approach such a thing? Actually, now that I'm based on what everything I just said, was was that factual? My assessment there.
1: I think probably. Let's bear in mind that I am I am licensed to practice in DC. I am not representing any clients uh, related to Scientology. Of course. Um. I am not providing legal advice. Rather, I am speculating on a hypothetical situation.
0: Yes, this is, and, and maybe we should have said that at the beginning, because that's a, that's, and that's a, that's the only basis on which we are, ta- which I'm talking to you right now. I'm not trying to, you know, get people to sign up with you or let's go sue the church or anything. This is a theoretical conversation about questions I have and have had for a long time about some of this stuff. So. Um, and this is provided for entertainment purposes only. <laughs> and education. Yes, for sure. Education, actually. That's uh, really the point.
1: Um, I'm going to do with a hypothetical Sea Org member who joins under a number of assumptions about justice and ethics and protection, uh, et cetera. Gets subjected to a degree of physical violence and harsh work conditions and eventually leaves and then go then has people chasing after him for his freeloader day.
0: Yep.
2: So
1: I work with that hypothetical.
0: Great. Pretty typical. Uh,
1: in that uh in that billion year contract, the time frame or lack of pay itself is not itself a problem Mm -hmm. relative lack of compensation is not by itself uh, abusive Mm -hmm. Uh, what matters more for a lot of people is the procedural unconscionability is it done under the threat of coercion Mm -hmm. and at least initially it may not be but then again It's Scientology. They've probably known of people who've been declared. They probably fear for the state of their Thetan uh, without the benefits of Scientology uh, tech. Yes. So that's a carrot, but it's also a stick. Mm -hmm. And all those declarations of how horrible the world will be without Scientology and how doomed people are without Scientology tech isn't just a draw, it's also a threat if you don't do stuff to get that tech. Mm-hmm. So, you also have uh, some pressure mechanisms. I don't know how much credit I give to Steve Mango, but he did describe the process by which he signed on to staff. Mm-hmm. There it we- was write, write stuff. It's not binding, just write it. Then write another letter, then write another letter. And it was just inching a person along, bringing a lot of people in the room to provide emotional pressure. That's right. And this is from an organization that he was supposed to trust implicitly.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And a minister-penitent relationship is supposed to be fiduciary. You have a special relation of trust and a special concern about abusing that. And Scientology relies on that relationship for protection from the law, but it also ignores the problems when they violate that trust. So if a person's PC file ends up getting uh, declassified, or stuff gets leaked, or a person gets slurred, that is implicitly a threat. Even if it doesn't happen to you, it is an environment of coercion. Right. Right. Even if the direct activity is not visibly coercive, you have to bear in mind the environment of threat. And I would argue that that reduces the voluntariness of anything that happens in Scientology.
0: Yeah, I mean, if that could be shown... And that's where we, I think, get into this concept, as I understand it, and I, I know, legal and as I'm bringing this up because I know legally this is mostly gets into the business world. Um, in fact, I think exclusively it does. But I, I, I can't help but you know we use this term in in the, in the in psychology for how someone can have an undue influence on another person, how they can have, you know. People have influence on others. Everybody influences everybody else to one degree or another, and that's and there's nothing particularly wrong with that. But undue influence is where there is coercion, threats, you know, uh, real or threatened violence, or consequences, uh, perhaps illegal consequences. And how does that get? So 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 legally, undue influence is a is a is business contract thing, right?
1: um it's an
0: there are two doctrines one is undue influence that comes
1: from the tradition of equity Mm -hmm. uh, which is now largely merged with law but it's one set of ideas about how you compel people to do the right thing even if it's not the law in the books the other is uh i can't remember the exact phrase here but it's more like uh, responding to fraud, which is the branch from law. There's a lot of overlap. So undue influence generally pertains to close relationships, but fraud might be more general.
0: OK. Could I, if that, I remember the terms? Could those laws be utilized? in a case of coercive control like we're talking about with Scientology to show or be utilized to move the ball down the road in the direction of showing how these groups like Scientology specifically exert an undue amount of influence through threats you know now is the are or are the courts going to freak out because those threats are spiritual in nature or psychological in nature and are not, I'm going to beat you with this stick if you don't go on the RPF. Instead, it's you're going to lose all your connections. You're going to lose your family, all your friends, and uh, we're going to kick you out of the church and you're never going to have spiritual eternity ever again. You know, they, they leverage the belief And they leverage the future against you and your connections against you. There's nothing physical there. There's no overt physical threat. And the spiritual eternity is a religious faith-based belief, but it is leveraged against you to adjust your behavior. So can that be looked at by a court somewhere as illegal behavior on, on 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 the basis of undue influence?
1: Looking at contract cases, mm-hmm. uh, a special relationship can be considered undue influence and grounds for uh, rescinding a contract or-, or taking it back.
0: And that or- was the thought that I had with Valerie Haney, who got her case thrown out again this last week. Another you know, thing that happened this last week where Keith Raniere goes to jail for 120 years and we're never going to see the light of day again. But Valerie Haney, who had to escape from Scientology in the back of somebody's car uh, in the trunk, she's climbed in and and escaped, right? Uh, She can't get her day in court because of this exact factor, right? The contract law that she signed a contract.
1: Unfortunately, I haven't read... The exact complaint. Uh, so, this is one of those things where well, she's not bringing a case there. on.
0: She's not bringing a case on undue influence. She was she was filing a civil suit for you know kidnapping, false imprisonment, just straight up criminal activity. And she was trying to bring a civil suit because they couldn't prosecute criminally. Nobody will pick it up. So they go after it in a civil suit, and the civil suit gets thrown out because you signed a contract. That said, you know, that religious arbitration was going to be the way that you were going to go about dealing with any problems. And again, speaking to what you said earlier, you go in, you sign this contract on good faith thinking that you, if the church has a problem, you have a problem with the church. There is an internal system of conflict resolution which will resolve this. But that's a lie. You are not afforded individual justice in Scientology and religious arbitration. There is a total joke. So how and I think how do we get past that front gate of like, hey you guys, this contract was bullshit. The My- courts keep saying no. It's the contract, you signed it, you signed it. You have to go to their religious arbitration. This is the second time now.
1: And um, contract law and arbitration are not my fields, but the okay. Federal Arbitration Act governs arbitration. And of course, there are a number of state laws as well. Yep. But uh, I want to double check. I want to say uh, nine U.S. code, sorry, uh, Title Nine U.S. Code Section 10A uh, uh, allows the voiding of an arbitration order where it was procured by corruption, fraud, undue means, evident partiality, or corruption of the arbitrators, uh, misconduct, and similar things that would be Serious grounds for not viewing it as impartial uh, effort to obtain justice,
0: and I was fascinated by the fact that last—I think it was last week or the week before—I did a show. We talked in our in our Collins show about religious arbitration, and, and I, I wish
1: I had caught it.
0: Yeah, well, you can check it out. I I um I pulled up you know, the, uh, the FAA, right, the, the, the Federal Arbitration Act, and an analysis of it that was done, I think, by Santa Cruz or San Jose Law Center or something. There was something, Santa Clarita. Anyway, there was, a, there was a law review done of this that was quite extensive. It was like this 50, 60-page analysis of, of arbitration in Canada and the United States. And it made the point that uh, legally... Um, the arguments against religious arbitration are inherent bias on those in the arbitration, since they're choosing from existing Scientologists in good standing. That would apply Which, here. Rel-
1: right? Considered a relatively minor bias, unless there are direct mechanisms of control like Scientology
0: ethics. Exactly. So my question becomes, right? Um, let see, because the court said, yeah, we don't care about that, 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 that bias that exists on the part, because this goes on in Judaism in Islam in in but, lots of religions, they have their own little court system. And a lot system. of those arbitration systems actually work pretty well. Because they have uh, impartial, the Jew- the, yeah. The Orthodox
1: Jewish arbitration system in London is considered one of the world's best arbitration systems. Interesting. Hmm. Hundreds of millions of dollars of maritime cases go to them because they're considered great. Right. Well, but they really are allowed to be impartial.
0: Exactly. So that's the question: Is can a case? Could it? Could a? If you were to bring a case against Scientology now, given that there have been two cases already where of civil suits, one for fraud, Luis Garcia's case from Florida, and then Valerie Haney's case with much serious charges, including, you know, uh, false imprisonment, kidnapping, et cetera. If, if both of those get thrown out before the judge even lets anybody look at it because of contract law, is there some legal maneuver or strategy where that can get addressed first? So, you know, like, look, Scientology is going to bring this. They're going to, you know, we're going to file this case and as part of filing this case, we're going to tell the judge, this is what Scientology is going to respond with, and this is why it's not right. And we actually need to take this defense out of Scientology's toolkit. Is there a way to do that?
1: I don't know. That requires specifics. That requires looking at the case law of when arbitrators had been declared uh, too biased, Uh or well, other similar problems. Well, I'm talking
0: about undue influence now. Cause... their
1: uh, decisions or even allow uh, people to bypass the arbitration.
0: Well, that's what I'm talking about is canceling it.
1: Right. That Can- would require looking at local laws, local cases, uh, and that requires specifics, and you need a lawyer for that. I'm not qualified to answer that, unfortunately.
0: That's disappointing. Okay, because if any case is ever going to be brought against Scientology from this point forward in a civil suit, they're going to have to figure out how to get over that hurdle.
1: And, and I, I thought... Think the evidence of Scientology's arbitrators being uh, unable to be objective is pretty strong. Mm-hmm. Considering the nature of the internal controls within Scientology.
0: Exactly. Now, can you make that case without putting Scientology's legal or we sorry, religious beliefs on trial? I think so. Okay, because that strikes me as the first thing they'll try to do, right? I mean, Scientology tries every way, everything they can to get cases oh. dismissed. So
1: while I do not agree that it is a religion, I will at least acknowledge their ability to try to use that
0: argument. Oh well, they've been recognized so, officially in courts as a religion. There's no, I mean, we that that ship's already sailed. It's just a matter of can we can we show that they are exerting uh, undue influence over their members when they make them sign these contracts, or you know, through this continuing use of these contracts
1: now, with or the contracts themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's bear in mind that people volunteer for nasty stuff all the time. Uh, And that can be voluntary. Uh, The Um. life of uh, people in some jobs is absolutely miserable because of toxic work environment, poor conditions, long hours, and that's considered legal and uh, Even though it is a miserable work environment, it's not considered cultic or coercive in signing into that.
0: Even in these cases, you know, they have provided, in Valerie Haney's case, for example, to be very super specific, and also I think Luis Garcia's appeals, they provided the court with documents from former members, Mike Rinder, that you know, Leah Remini, Remini, etc., said, Judge I, you know mike rinder literally is like look i'm the guy who actually helped put this together i worked with the church's attorneys to fabric to to create this fabrication of you know this veneer of justice that we are, that it was absolutely positively never intended to ever help anybody but the church and the and the courts and the judge just doesn't I don't even know if they read them. I don't are they required to even read these things?
1: Um, as judges? I don't know because um, I know that uh, executive agency uh, officials are not required to read every document they receive huh. just enough to make a rational determination. Judges, however, I don't know if they're required to read everything. okay. That it's probably a higher standard for judges, but I don't know.
0: OK, I was just I just it just occurred to me just now because I because you can't tell in looking at their decisions if they even did, you know, they don't seem to even acknowledge the fact that, you know, that there they are don't people have to
1: acknowledge everything.
0: No, of course not. But I'm just saying in the in the the I, I didn't, well, you know, I, I, I like didn't. I also about
1: Mike Render stuff, because that would be. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Leaving aside all other applications.
0: Yeah, no. Check out Tony Ortega's blog on Valerie Haney's case. He posts all the legal documents, the decisions, everything. It's all there. So wow. I, I'd actually would would love you to take a look at that and and go over those because I don't see you don't see in the results. You know, you 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 know the situation. I. Like, there are very few things I know as intimately well as I know Scientology and how it operates and the culture of it. And so I know it's a criminal enterprise. I know they are screwing with people 24-7. And so when you see a judge go, eh, nah, religious arbitration off you go do your contract you know you signed it so off you go to religious arbitration and they're saying look judge this is bullshit this is not right they they just shouldn't be doing this yeah i don't care off you go the, you can't the true
1: fear the true scare of Holly Wayne, Scientology's legal status.
0: Basically my point, right? Basically why I'm doing this on Halloween. I was going to actually end (laughs) with that. I was going to, the scariest creature you're going to run across this year, besides maybe COVID, is... The Church of Scientology is these destructive cults taking advantage of the legal system. And I just, I, I feel like they're taking advantage of this system. I want this system to work for us. But I have to be honest with you that the thing that drives me to contact you about this in the first place is I am honestly starting to really wonder if there is any legal avenue of redress for the wrongs committed by these destructive cults against their members.
1: I think so, but you have to be careful with your argument.
2: Yeah. Because
1: yeah. you let's remember, uh judges encounter lots of hyperbolic claims all the time. Well, it takes true that. patience to avoid getting jaded and just throwing everything uh back at people on the assumption that they're lying. Right. And when you have a controversial body. Uh, and I think Scientology certainly is controversial, that instinct needs to be especially controlled, but is it is also especially strong.
0: Right. So Man, when you is, get into that, you
1: need to focus on the exact argument because there are many arguments that can cause a case to be dismissed and a judge can dismiss a case because it is brought under on the wrong grounds because the procedure is off. They're supposed to make some allowances for that. But procedural failings can also sink a case uh, because you haven't presented enough evidence. Uh, And I think there's certainly a lot of evidence about Scientology, but not necessarily enough to support the specific legal argument. Interesting. And this is one of those things where Details matter, exact arguments matter, and know that Scientology is going to try to hit at any weak point, even if it means twisting words. And that is where you need an alert mind capable of arguing specifics on a dime. Hmm. And it's not something a person can do on their own.
0: Right. No, it's not. That much is clear. And it seems that there are... Um, you know, I don't want to be unjust in this, but I have not been impressed by the lawyers who have been bringing these suits and their lack of preparation and understanding of what it is that they're actually dealing with when they take on the church Scientology. It just seems like they don't quite come prepared bringing their A game. And I wonder if that's because of the quality of the attorneys or the quality of Scientology's attorneys or... If I'm just misassessing, I don't know. But it feels that way to me.
1: I don't know. I haven't observed those cases specifically. Scientology has a reputation for throwing mounds of paperwork at Mm -hmm. people. And for bringing in a whole bunch of factors outside the courtroom to pressure people.
0: That's right. Both of those things are
1: true. And that is not something lawyers normally deal with. Because judges usually shut down the mounds of paperwork, uh, and it's rare that people uh, can throw a whole bunch of outside-the-courtroom factors against attorneys. Usually, attorneys themselves are off-limits, even among mobsters.
0: Interesting. Interesting. That, That itself was interesting. Huh. Yeah, this is difficult, man. This is frustrating. It's frustrating as a as a as a trauma survivor former member of this of, of a group and now somebody who's, you know, I'm trying to learn about this subject in a much more broader sense and trying to figure out how we how we can help these the the victims of these groups, you know. because um, there's a catharsis there to be had, you know, and you can when you can strike back against your abuser in some fashion that's effective. And useful, and and shows the world that they can't get away with that kind of abuse anymore. It matters. I think that kind of thing is important. But we seem to be hampered by a justice system that is more involved in the, you know, the 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 the, the commas and the dots and the ts and stuff than than justice. And this is, the, and I know I I always I always have to put my friends on the spot for the failings of the systems they're part of, and it's and it's awful because I'm not trying to. To, to put you under the, you know, okay, Cyprian, now you have to answer for the legal system. But but as somebody who works in it, can you understand the frustration of, of the people who outside of it who don't understand all the complexities of it and feel helpless to do anything but shake our fists at this system that refuses to acknowledge that psychological coercive control is a real thing?
1: And the irony is that... I have an easier time with the legal system because I see recourse in it that I don't see in uh, in the court of popular opinion.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, the court of popular opinion. It it's a different opinion, way yeah, of thinking you know, about things. That's for sure. I I don't like the fact that we have to try the case against Scientology and against most other destructive cults and leaders. By the way, from Teal Swan to you know Jim Jones and everything in between you have to try these people in the court of public opinion because you can't, because of two factors. One, everything we've talked about already. And two, even if all of that was still, even even with all of that, the additional hurdle for people, and this isn't your fault, it's not really any individual's fault, but somehow this 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 is just an un- surmountable barrier is the time and money it requires to bring a case against these people as a trauma survivor without being re-traumatized in the process. That's hard. That's, that's a rough one. One of
1: the nasty side effects of the presumption of, it, of innocence and the demand for
0: evidence. But more than that, it's, it's, it's not that principle that's actually at fault. It's the inaccessibility of the legal system to the regular Joe you know cult survivor right or Sally Sue whatever they, they don't have the money. they have usually been bankrupted or financially raped as well as psychologically and emotionally destroyed by the by their experience with the group. They can barely I mean there are trauma survivors people who come out of these groups who can't even say the word of the group they were part of the name of it, right. Like this is like there is work that has to be done with some of these people in order to get them back to normal. Uh, it's years of work, and, and then we have to deal with everything from statutes limitations to you know all these writs and orders and legal documents that you cannot get through without hiring. Lawyers, and then you need to hire not just any lawyer because apparently, lawyers, the the skill level and and area and everything else matters. So, you got to find the right lawyer who's going to actually do it right, and then you got to pay them thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars just to possibly be told. In fact, chances are you will be told. Fuck you. It, it was a religion. You signed a contract. You did this. You did that. And guess what? There's no justice for you. And in fact, sometimes you end up even having to pay their legal fees. I mean, how are we supposed to possibly think this is a system of quote unquote justice when that's the outcome for Here's the problem. so many people?
1: Scientology designed itself as a chameleon. A lot of the structure of society uses the legal system to enforce promises because a society where people don't adhere to their reciprocal promises is one where things don't get done very well. Uh, We need contracts to be enforced for things as simple as where are you going to eat? So contracts are essential to civilization. You also have uh, the need for contemplation, moral analysis, and trying to discern a purpose to life. So religion is essential. Mm -hmm. And you've got to protect that. Because otherwise you're going to have so many interfactional conflicts that things are going to get destroyed. It's happened not, in the past.
0: And I'm certainly not debating any of these points. I, I, I'm starting from
1: first principles.
0: Yeah, and, and I don't argue with these, with what you've mentioned so far. I believe, I believe all of these things can be true, and somehow we can still, we we still need accessibility to the system for the common man.
1: But here's the thing. Hubbard, uh, a lot of cult leaders, try to reinvent the wheel. Uh... And they don't understand bureaucracy enough to survive the initial scrutiny from law enforcement. Okay. so when the first raid comes, some people bug out. Some people get sickened by various crimes and they report it. And when the police come, the cult leader can't really defend themselves effectively in court. uh, And the whole thing crumbles. Who's that leader of the FLDS?
0: Oh, yeah, Warren, um, Warren Jeffs. Yeah, the guy who had 62-plus wives and a lot of the minors. Yeah, he's in jail they forever. They managed to co-opt part
1: of the local state bureaucracy. Yeah. But they didn't have the legal clout to uh, keep a lot of the scrutiny away from them in terms of contractual issues. I think what really sunk... The FLDS was ex members asking for their property back. Really? It, because trying to get a criminal investigation when the local cops are controlled by the FLDS isn't going to get very far. Right. But when it's local people asking about things as simple as property deeds, you don't really have the local authorities being able to stop that.
0: Man feels an awful lot like going after Capone for his accounting, you know what i mean? Like it's like okay, i guess i guess this is how we have to do it, but it's frustrating, man. I just got to tell you, it's as as a as a non-legally trained person who doesn't really understand the system beyond conversations i have with you and the limited degree of experience i have with it. It's frustrating.
1: And remember, Hubbard was in the Navy. Hubbard had to deal with Navy bureaucracy. Hubbard had been subject to a Navy investigation. Mm -hmm. So the whole concept of what evidence is there, what role do witnesses play, uh, what is the interest of the bureaucracy in just maintaining order? And in that environment, he was able to both design a method of internal control but also appoint people to be able to uh, mollify the outside bureaucracy. And Scientology aren't stupid criminals. They do stupid things. They do crimes. But they aren't your typical stupid gang member. No. They, they plan their crimes in a way that tries to stay Maybe a little beyond the law, but at least close enough that they can run uh, and say, well, we didn't realize it was illegal.
0: Right. Uh, So it's somewhat defensible. Well, let me make it even darker because Hubbard's takeaway for as of. Abusing it constantly. 1955. March 1955. Hubbard, quote, the purpose of the suit is to harass and discourage rather than win. The law can be used very easily to harass. And enough yep. harassment on somebody who is simply on the thin edge anyway will generally ca- be sufficient to cause professional decease, if possible, ruin him utterly. That's where that's the full quote there. So in that's as, in,
1: as intimidation. That's
0: When the justice system itself becomes part of a destructive cult's coercive control mechanisms then something's really wrong. You know? And I think that might be part of, it. it maybe what I just said might be the summation of the actual point of frustration that us ex-cult members feel watching this nonsense play out in courts where it's taken, it's cost these former members thousands, tens of thousands of dollars just to get there. And And then they get told, fuck you. You got no leg to stand on. We got nothing for you. Off you go. I got to tell you, man. I, you know, at the end of the day, it's dispiriting. There, yeah. yeah, it's 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 morale destroying.
1: And the problem for the court system is how do you distinguish between someone who did it voluntarily and just had some emotional bitterness later? And an actual abusive situation, right? And oh, as long as you're required to treat every case individually, and uh, start with the presumption of innocence and demand evidence, constant demands for evidence and constant, uh, constant demands for process, they're going to rack up the bills of the person who's trying to vindicate what happened to them. But it's also going to going to frustrate uh, people. Yeah, and that is Scientology's and a lot of other organizations' way of calculating the legal cost versus the intimidation cost.
0: Right. Right. Well, clearly Scientology's calculations are that they can spend. You know, they they're willing to dump millions of dollars into defending themselves from these suits because they're protecting their cash cow. I mean, let's be clear, right? And the calculus is, you know, the accountants run the calculus. I always take it for granted that in any corporation beyond, you know, about 100 people or so, you're probably going to have some guy who just takes days and calculates every possible adverse scenario and the cost-benefit ratio analysis of like, okay, what's going to be cheaper for us to do? You know, and it's the classic, you know, car manufacturer who decides that they're going to let the bad part stay out there, and people are going to die, but they're going to spend less in the lawsuits paying those people's families off than they will in the recall process. So that's the calculus they go with, and you just go, "Oh my god!" But that's, uh, I think, that's where Scientology's at too. And in law
1: and accounting. There's actually part of the generally accepted accounting procedures, uh, which is a body of rules about accounting, uh, which discusses how you count the liability of lawsuits. Right. It is expected.
0: Right. Exactly. My point. Right. And so obviously Scientology's, you know, done those calculations. And so that's why they dump the millions and millions of dollars that they do. Plus, of course, David Miscavige just loves these results. He loves destroying people through the legal system. It's, I think he personally gets off on it, but that that's not really here nor there in terms of what we're talking about. But I just just as added color on this whole thing. Uh, there's. You
1: know? There's a few other things. Mm-hmm. Scientology's lawyers have sometimes engaged in questionable things,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, such as trying to get a certain laptop held by law enforcement, uh, On a flimsy legal pretext. Mm -hmm. That was questionable. And uh, depending on how much scrutiny uh, attorney discipline wants to apply to him, he could get in trouble for that. But I would guess that he was being paid enough that that risk was one he was willing to take.
2: Mm.
1: Even so, I'm sure some Scientology lawyers do mildly shady things
0: at the very least. I ask you a question here about, about this, because you're a lawyer. And I actually support the argument that everybody deserves a good legal defense, even scumbags, right? I really do. I, I really, I, I, I enjoy the privilege of living in a country where we have a system where that is a core belief of the system. A core fundamental of the system is that everybody has a right to a fair trial, jury of their peers, etc. This is something I think that is invaluable as a principle, even if it's not acted out. You know, and even if I can sit here for an hour and and complain about the injustices of the system, I still believe in these core principles with all my heart. That being said, are the people who take cases you know that that sign on to represent people like Keith Raniere or or the church of scientology or or you know the hari krishnas or these other groups that are not just controversial i mean that you start looking into these groups and as a lawyer i can't imagine yeah i mean i can't imagine a lawyer is not going to become aware during the course of defending something like the church of scientology In this Valerie Haney case, for example, here's a woman who's bringing a suit that she had to get in the back of a car, escape, she was persecuted, she's been stalked, harassed, threatened, intimidated, etc. And the lawyers for for Scientology are going to see all this information and they're going to know that she's not lying. How is it just, I mean, do these people, are they operating, from your experience, and I know it's not like, you know, I haven't gone and talked to Scientology's attorneys, but is it a principled position that they believe that they, that they're defending Scientology because everybody gets a fair shake? Or do you think from, I mean, I mean, I mean, this professionally, I mean, do you think from your experience in the profession that these people are how the public regard them? Just catfish, just scumbags, just people who take, who say anything for money? I, I have a hard time balancing of that. Some,
1: I can think of some legitimate reasons uh, to represent Scientology. Mm-hmm. The system works better if uh, the best arguments are heard from both sides. Mm-hmm. And when you have a deeply disliked and sus- and deeply suspected group like Scientology, their ability to raise important arguments. Uh, and the issues of society that they bring up would be ignored without good representation
2: mm-hmm.
1: and just because they're just because they're in the wrong doesn't mean they can sometimes be right and you have to deal with issues individually not just on the basis of are they a net good or net bad no you have to deal with the specifics of good and bad. Yeah. However, uh, uh, there are, you're not allowed to be an accessory and some of the conduct in the way that uh, there are at least allegations that a lot of lawsuits uh, and measures against critics are being done for intimidation, not a real legal purpose. And that would be a violation of attorney ethics and a violation of the benefit that lawyers bring to society as people who address issues. Mm. Intimidation does not make the world better in that way. Uh, the attorney is there to uh, ensure that argument, that that issues get debated well, not to shut people up.
0: Right. I think we should regroup after you get a chance to go through Tony Ortega's blog and look at all the case filings on Valerie Haney's suit. Because I would love to discuss the specifics of that with you at another episode at a later date. I didn't come in expecting to talk all about Valerie Haney. I thought we were going to spend more time talking about contract law. But it, you know, the conversations goes where it goes. And I and I'm you know, I'm not I'm not uh, sad at all about our conversation here. I think we've covered good territory. And I and it's obvious that I'm not entering this from an unbiased objective, okay, let's be good critical thinkers here kind For of conversation. Accurate, like you
1: come at this with the experiences you have. Yes, and I the do. observations you have. Yes,
0: I do, and the education that I'm getting. And right now that education is aligned a lot around you know, how do we bring these people to justice through coercive control laws in the UK? I mean, I'm doing a UK based program in the uni, and that is focusing on UK law. I'm trying to think about how I might, you know, how that might be brought over into the United States, how the United States system might deal with this, how we might, you know, be able at some future date to show and prove, and then, you know, as a consequence free people from having to be under these you know such situ- abusive situations or at least get redress for the wrongs that were committed against them and i well it's a frustrating journey you know as you can tell from some of my comments here uh,
1: and it's certainly frustrating looking from the outside because as someone who was never a scientologist seeing the system be perverted the way it is is deeply frustrating
0: Right, so you so so then you do believe then as a lawyer who appreciates the the the, the I, I suppose you could say the purity of the law or what it is intended to do, you see that what they're doing is is a perversion of that system. oh yeah, okay, so it's not, so this isn't a matter of see,
1: sometimes some of it is some of it is,
0: some oh. of it isn't.
1: I have to be careful there.
0: Fair enough, but I and I and I'm, I and I'm not trying to paint with too broad a brush here. I'm really not. I, I I know that controversial groups deserve their day in court because maybe that controversy is based on lies or based on you know out of context statements or not the full picture. We see this over and over again. I've talked at length about court cases where you know the public thought one thing when the facts of the matter were the exact opposite and the jury has no choice but to render a non-guilty verdict in a case of a cop shooting or something for example and 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 people's heads explode because they don't actually know the specifics of the case but then of course you get other instances where you know like Breonna Taylor I think you might have been following some of that in the headlines okay well I mean, i've heard
1: various allegations but i haven't been able to dig into it.
0: it fair enough well it's come up today and and so i wouldn't expect you to be totally up to up to whatever on this and I'm not pr- pretending to be an expert on Brianna Taylor's case but I read this morning that the grand jurors who you know were who had to you know not prosecute the cops involved uh were not even presented with the charges that they wanted to indict these officers on it wasn't even on the table for them to do it so you also get and, I, and all I'm going to say about that right now is that you know clearly the 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 You can have human error enter into this, too. You can have agenda, and you can have bias, and you can have people just make straight up stupid mistakes, and the justice system can appear to not work because of that, too. So I'm not trying to blame everything on a systemic issue, but I am trying to understand the difference between where am I seeing human error or bias or perversion, as you put it, versus... A correct utilization of a system that has issues, but are all of these problems problems with and the system?
1: Addressing disparities in how blacks are treated by the police and justice system is a huge topic. Yeah, and would deal with a very different issues than how Scientology, of course, abuses I, the legal system.
0: Of course, I just bring it up as a parallel example of where there's a correct degree of public outrage over an incident and then but the court not on system the specifics. Yeah, and then the court system lets them down, right? Because the attorneys or the the DA or whoever doesn't even give the grand jury the chance to do what the public believes it's doing. And they don't even get a chance. Now you can check that out yourself and I'm just giving an off the cuff there. But I, 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 I'm just trying to use that as an example to differentiate, you know, separate the wheat from the chafe, right? Separate the, okay. where's the systemic problem versus the human problem here?
1: Okay, and I'd like to go back to the voluntariness issue. Sure. Because one, I think this is the core of it, and two, kind um, of talked about that earlier, but yeah. probably not enough to actually be clear to people. Uh, so much of behavior is considered legitimate because it is voluntary it is presumed that people aren't being coerced mm-hmm. and because it's assumed that people aren't being coerced the lack of compensation is considered not an issue
0: okay uh it's assumed that both because, parties are operating in good faith is that another way for me to put that
1: uh, yes it is assumed that way why would that be because assumed they aren't You'll, then other laws come into
0: play. <laughs> okay, because it seems to me that that is an interesting there, but flawed assumption. in court: There's a, cor- there's a, a court.
2: lot uh, Most
1: of life doesn't have to directly deal with the legal system. It's the outliers right. that deal with the legal system. Right. And those outliers end up being what keeps the road uh, going.
0: Yeah, it just seems like challenging those those assumptions is a very difficult process.
1: Oh, Look, 90% of what lawyers argue about are the edge cases. Okay. But it's the run-of-the-mill, okay, this is pretty clear-cut. I'm just going to use a form and say, hey, whatnot, and it's over. That's 90% of law. Okay, It's 10% that is really nitty-gritty, I don't know where the border is, that sort of stuff.
0: Right. Well, that's where we're at in this territory. That's that's the territory we're in right now with this. And and, and we need this figured out. We really do. Because we're only getting, get, things are only getting worse as far as coercive control goes. Because we encounter it all over the place these days. Here's a question.
1: What evidence do you take that something is voluntary? How do you prove something is voluntary?
0: I don't know. How do you? It's a good question, I guess. But more to the point, how do you show? You know, humans aren't binary creatures. This is, I guess, and this is really the problem with systems. You know, is we we operate on spectrums. We operate on on gradations of, of of things. We are not binary. When we become binary, we are extremists. We have entered into a headspace that is not a good place for anybody to be. So it's um, so it's interesting, you know. It's interesting because this is this is uh, maybe at the maybe at the root of the whole thing is this this problem of you
1: I, the know, legal system is a system. It,
0: yeah, it's a system. It is built around
1: trying to de- establish predictability. Right. Because even if there are specific injustices, uh It's hoped that the predictability will make things better for the vast majority of people. That may not be true. So you need to do a whole bunch of calculations of seeing what law or what standard is going to be abused in what way and how can we mitigate that? Mm -hmm. Because if you, uh, here's a situation. A person builds their house and it actually goes uh, onto somebody else's property. You tear down that part of the house Or do you let them buy that part of the property?
0: I guess it would depend on the two parties. Well, it
1: depends on the state. (laughs) Okay. Sure, of course it does. (laughs) Some people demand that, okay, it's 11 inches onto my property. Tear that down. But it's going to make the house uh, structurally unstable. I don't care. Tear it down. And can they demand that? Some places, yes. Some places, no. Okay. But... What are the incentives that creates for the person who uh, demands tear it it down? Uh, Does that seem kind of unjust? Yeah. But it is a way to incentivize people to be careful about property surveying. Right. And if people are careless about that, well, okay, the big guy who owns a big business and who likes to muscle people, people out of their way, oh, yeah, I accidentally built Twelve yards onto your property. What are you going to do about it? All right. In other cases, uh, you have a guy. Oh, come on, gosh, gee, sorry. Um, you know, I don't. I don't want to have to rebuild my uh, brand new house. Can I just pay you twelve thousand for uh, uh, these uh, twelve uh, square inches of land? Oh, and there—that seems pretty unjust. And you don't want to encourage that. Right. But. How do you balance the hurting someone who made a genuine mistake despite some careful efforts at surveying uh, versus trying to avoid the abusive guy who commits accidents?
0: Right. Interesting. And you
1: can only develop, if you're going to be equal you ha- and predictable, you have to have one rule. And you're going to have an abuse one way or you're going to have an abuse the other way. Yeah. And welcome to the life of a lawyer. You have to say, okay, my client, yes, he did this, but the consequences would be so much worse. And the judge has to determine, okay, is this true? Is this false? Where's the evidence? Because I can't just make a guess. I'm not allowed to guess. I'm required to make a call based on evidence. Oh gosh, everybody's going to hate me either way.
0: Exactly. That's, you know, I get the point, man. You're absolutely right. I mean, this is, and you have made the point many times, and 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 rightfully so, that context matters, and that every single case has to be looked at on its own merits because the contexts are different. Every person's going to have their own individual experiences, and for those of us who are advocating for the victims who are ourselves victims, we're and very can prove that you're a victim. Oh no, That's I get it, thing. I get it, and I understand, and I and I do, I I understand that part of it. I think maybe um, in the case of, you know, when you see things like Valerie Haney's case or the Headley's case, the frustration comes from the fact that they didn't even get their day in court. They couldn't even get the ball that far down the road before it got kicked to the curb for reasons we know. We know our total horseshit. And that's difficult to deal with. And that's why this conversation. Yeah. And
1: understanding... How that happens is one of those things where you have to remember that courts deal with hyperbole all the time,
0: right? As do cops. Unintended. That's right. As do cops. This is, and and we forget about that because we look at the hits, we look at the misses, or whatever, and we forget. If we're concentrating on the bad stuff, we don't want to look at, or we forget about, or we negate the good stuff, or vice versa. And that's humans. That's that's, that's, what, that's what we do. I, I guess then, after having gotten some of this off my chest <laughs> and maybe moving towards wrapping the show up, because we've been talking for a while now, is I'd like to say that I think, um, I, I don't think it's hopeless. I mean, after talking with you here, because I have gone in that headspace. I'm going to just be straight up. I have definitely said and tweeted and thought it's just not any use. It's not even... Any, why bother? Why bother trying to take him out legally? It's, it, it, you know, there's no use. And I don't like thinking that way. I don't want to be defeatist. I don't want to be the person who says, you know, the naysayer who, who turns into the, well, nobody's done it so far, so it can't be done. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be encouraging. I want to be optimistic. And it is hard sometimes. But I... After talking to you, it seems to me that... um And tell me what you think about this, that what we're really dealing with here is when, you know, Scientology has been beaten in court. They have had judgments against them. They are not undefeatable, nor is any other group out there. They are not undefeatable, but it requires, you know, people who have a pretty good, strong head on their shoulders And I'm talking about the lawyers now, you know, the people who are going to bring the strategy, who are going to advise their clients as to what to do. It it, it really takes research and knowledge and understanding of of the past with the way Scientology litigates, for example, to bring something that's going to actually work. Do Do you think that... I'm right in that kind of stupidly simplistic assessment or am I missing something there?
1: I think you're right.
0: Okay, good.
1: Because Scientology can't
0: threaten judges
1: too much. They can't intimidate judges too much without dealing with blowback. Mm -hmm. So they have to play somewhat by the rules. And when you look at the specific arguments uh, that don't relate to their ostensibly religious claims, you are going to run into things that they have done wrong, that you have proof that they've done wrong. And if you can keep it isolated to that and don't let Scientology's efforts to try to shift the focus away from those things to protected activity uh, happen, I think you have a legally winning argument. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, I am thinking of a theoretical case having to do with misrepresentation. uh, And I am not thinking of any specific case because actual cases are harder.
0: Of course. But
1: there are laws about contracts and misrepresentation and violating a fiduciary relationship. And those have been found to be winners uh, in other contexts. And those go to the core of the voluntariness issue that Scientology defends itself with. Right.
0: Good. Well, maybe that's exact, exactly the strategy that should be tried. You know? Because somehow this has to get negated. These contracts are ridiculous. They never really do anything for the people there there who are signing them. They do everything for the Church of Scientology. You know, the Church benefits exclusively from that arrangement. And, uh, But the people don't know that when they're signing them because they're so wrapped up in the euphoria of, you know, Scientology is the greatest thing ever and it would never do me wrong. So they sign away their rights and it's cray cray that we live in that world.
1: And shout out to Austin Instrument Inc. v. Laurel Corp. uh, 29 NY 2nd, 124, 1971. For. Uh, One company had a contract with the government to supply certain electronics. So they needed to buy parts from another company. The other company threatened uh, to withhold shipment unless they agreed to a price increase. That was considered duress. It was a threat to violate a current contract uh, if they wouldn't agree to something as simple as a price increase. Hmm. duress, I think, in financial matters, is rather less serious than the known history of stalking and family separation and other bad things that have happened to critics. Right. I think that really impacts any contractual claims being made.
0: I agree. I agree. Well, hopefully, you know. Hopefully somebody smart's listening to this out there, because <laughs> because we need the help, man. You know, uh, I'm gonna I've, guess Scientology's lawyers will be listening to this too. Ah, uh, probably, or you know, somebody in you know, OSA so probably listens to all my shit, but. You know, I I doubt that they're running down the hall right now going, here's what they're going to do next, right? I mean, this is just a podcast. But I, I needed to sort this out for myself in my own head. I needed to be okay with what's going on because I haven't been okay with what's going on. And I don't mean that I'm okay with the results and it's all good now. I mean, I need to be okay with what's going on because... It you is, have to have
1: hope that things can get better,
0: yeah, I and really I think do
1: things can get better
0: exactly, I really do and uh, and I can see lots of avenues of hope. I really can. I can see lots of ways that we could do lots of good things um and I'm trying to learn as fast as I can so I can figure out how to do them faster and better and easier and more efficiently. but um but it's hard. it's hard. You know, when you get the when you get the losses and the and the the defeats, they can be fatiguing, <laughs> you know, disheartening.
1: Uh it's one thing to have the courage to suffer, it's quite another to have the courage to achieve.
0: Yeah. Yeah, good point. Good point. Well, Cyprian, thank you very much for, for letting me ramble here and ask you crazy, stupid questions and, and go back and forth on all of this. I know as a lawyer, some of my- I love to keep talking about contracts <laughs> and duress and voluntariness. Okay, good. Well, like I said, I'd like you to take a look at all the specifics of, of Valerie's case, and maybe we should go back in on that at a future date, because I, I would be interested in talking the specifics of of that case. And it was the latest blow you know, the latest activity legally in the Scientology arena. Masterson's case is a whole criminal thing, and I don't really have a lot of questions about that. I think it just needs to move forward as a criminal case, and the guy needs to. He's already been indicted. You know, he's entering his not guilty plea. It'll roll forward there, and I don't see the same level or degree of shenanigans going on there as I do in the civil suits. I think that's where Scientology really holds a lot more sway. So it'll be interesting, though, to see Masterson's case roll forward as well. But uh, anyway, again, Cyprian, thank you for your time and uh, attention to this and good-natured replies to my uh, sometimes critical carping comments about the legal system.
1: Carp-p-m. (laughs) Carp-daily.
0: Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, man. Folks out there, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. Um, and I hope it was interesting, informative, entertaining. And I will see you guys next week. Have a great Halloween if you're listening to this today. Otherwise, um, you know, have a great week. And, uh, and may the Force be with you. I will see you next week. Bye-bye.